there could be a world in the future where the database is everywhere and therefore the logic for the code that interacts with that database can also be everywhere. But that's not where we're today. Uh, we're not nowhere even close to that. Today, what's more realistic is that you have a certain database origin and therefore you have a, a co-located API origin as well. What we're starting to see is that you can move certain functions to other locations or even to all the edges. But that's more of a distant reality. I would be surprised if it even happened in the next two to three years at scale. I think what's mm -hmm. more likely to happen is, again, you're going to create an API in, in your region that makes the most sense. One way or another, everyone has picked Virginia. Um, mm -hmm. And that's going to be your start. And you're going to create an API around that. But then what you're going to distribute everywhere is your front ends and your static generated pages and so on. And by the way, I love that too, because... Like I said, I think the best outcome for consumers is that when they go to the content, there's no API call at all. There's no server, there's nothing. It's just mm -hmm. like, hey, give me the copy of the content that I wanted. Right. Um, so uh, I'm pretty happy with that world. Until a meteor hits Virginia and then we're all... Correct, <laughs> correct. <laughs> yeah. with for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode Cloud Servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This episode is brought to you by Rollbar. Move fast and fix things. Resolve errors in minutes and deploy with confidence. Head to Rollbar.com slash Changelog. Request a demo. Get started today. It's loved by developers, trusted by enterprises. And most of all, we use it here at Changelog. Move fast and fix things with Rollbar. Once again, rollbar.com slash changelog. Welcome back, everyone. This is Jamstack Party. Welcome to JS Party, your weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. Tune in next week for the return of our game show format. We're joined by Scott Talinsky from Syntax. I host it, Emma and Nick compete, and I'll tell you, things get a little crazy. One of us even manages to score negative infinity points. But that's next week. Here's Kashir Rauch. Take it away, Divya. Hello, hello to a new episode of JS Party. Today on the panel, we have with us Jared Santo. Hello, Divya. How are you? Good. I'm really good. And I'm tuning in from Chicago. And today for our guest, we have Guillermo Rausch from Zeit. How's it going? Thanks for having me. Very excited. Happy to have you. Yeah, we're, we're super psyched to speak to you because there's lots of things that you're working on at Zeit and with Next, and we'd love to dig into a lot of that. Um, I guess one of the things that we can start with is just like, what's new and what are you working on currently at Zeit or with Next? Yeah, timing is great because we've been making a lot of announcements over the past few weeks, primarily around uh, new capabilities in Next.js. One of them that I am personally really excited about and we've been working on for a while is uh, the next generation somewhat pun intended, yeah. uh, static side generation uh, support. So Next.js had um, kind of a middle ground support for producing static pages uh, in the past, mm -hmm. but it was kind of an all or nothing system. You could run Next build and then Next export. And then 
you would uh, ex export a simplified version of your website that was fully static. And it required quite a bit of config and it had some trade-offs. And what's been super interesting about Next.js is that it's become a hybrid framework where a lot of the flexibility that comes from using it is because you can make decisions on a page per page basis. So with the new mm -hmm. uh, static site generation support, uh, we basically are giving people two methods, one called get static props, uh, which is an alternative to get initial props, which will be executed at build time and therefore producing static HTML, and then get static paths, uh, which kind of goes hand in hand with a feature that we added uh, a while back, which was dynamic path segments. So for those of you that are uh, familiar with Next.js, we've always had file system-based routing where inside the pages directory, you define your JS files and then they become URLs, basically they become paths. Uh, but then we introduce dynamic ones. So you can use bracket notation to say, for example, pages slash blog slash bracket uh, slug bracket.js. And that's a dynamic one. So in conjunction with get static props, you get a new method called get static paths that allows you to basically say to Next.js, well, there is 100 blog posts that I need to generate, or there's 100 e-commerce items that I need to generate. And you're basically giving Next.js, in this case, the slug. And then mm -hmm. Next.js basically does all the rest and it produces a site of the size that you want with regards to static site generation. Cool. So that would reduce like the build time overall, specifically if you were like wanting to build pages on the fly. Is that kind of what? So it's, you can have the benefit of pre-rendering while also choosing. Yeah, yeah. So uh, more specifically, um, you are now able to say, hey, these pages are definitely uh, static. They'll mm -hmm. never go through a server at all. They'll never even use serverless functions. They'll be purely static. And I want to do this work ahead of time. So when I think about static site generation, I think there's lots and lots of benefits, but for the developer, one that's key is you kind of de-risk your project at build time, right? Like if you're producing 100 blog posts and one of them, you made a the wrong assumption, for example, about the shape of the data that was being returned and the HTML fails to be produced because JS throws, for example, mm -hmm. then your entire project gets blocked at the build pipeline and it doesn't go out, right? So like there's this uh, idea that by using static site generation, you de-risk. So you de-risk from errors, which in sort of my mental model that falls under availability, right? Whether you're online or offline. Uh, further in the availability spectrum, the nice thing about uh, static site generation is that if you've built them, then they can't possibly go offline unless things go like seriously wrong with the internet, but like Generally, you know, your database that generated those pages can go offline, your blog uh, CMS backend can go offline, whatever, but your pages are still alive. And then there's certainly a performance benefit, uh, which a helpful mental model that I've been using recently is what you're doing at build time would have happened eventually at runtime and it would have hit your users, right? So like I see it as timeline displacement. So what would have had happened later when you ship your website, when SSR mm -hmm. kicks in and like uh, a request is made to a database and whatever, there is time being spent there that in this case is happening at build time. So by the time your visitors come, not only is your website uh, more likely to be available, 
it's also more performant. Cool. So does get static paths is definitely creating those dynamic paths. So it, it does cache as well. So it does do the dynamic page generation, but it does utilize the cache as well. Right, exactly. So basically it just outputs HTML, right? So like the important part here is that uh, you might have hundreds of blog posts, thousands of mm-hmm. blog posts, millions of blog posts. So get static paths allows you, the developer, to decide which ones are the ones that I want to generate at build time. And I think something that sets Next.js apart, and perhaps we're the first to do this, although you know we'd have to do some peer review on this, mm-hmm. but I'm pretty confident that we're the first to also let you grow that data set at runtime, meaning that one of the limitations that ostensibly aesthetic generation has always had is, well, you can generate 2 million uh, pages, right? Mm-hmm. You're basically going to have to make 2 million database calls or headless CMS API calls at build time. Even if you could, you might not really want to because you enter this trade-off of like, okay, how for how long are we blocking the release to get that kind of de-risking and optimization that I mentioned earlier, right? And most companies are not mm-hmm. going to want to wait, you know, for 2 million pages to be all the IO and all the network IO and so on. Although mm-hmm. that, that might continue to grow in the future, meaning that what we consider okay today might continue to grow in the future as we become faster and faster at build time. But mm-hmm. the reality is with the Jamstack model, what we can do is we can generate, for example, a thousand pages, our most popular ones, and then we can defer the rest at runtime. So Next.js allows you to do this because get a static paths will say, you know, there's this thousand blog posts that I want to generate, but then it generates a optionally, it generates a skeleton as well. So if there is a new blog post later on, you're not going to get a 404. You're not going to have to rebuild your entire website. It kind of gives you this Jamstack model out of the box of like, hey, some stuff is pre-rendered and some stuff can be done fully dynamically later on. Cool. I noticed, I think yesterday or some, was it yesterday? Yeah, I think it was yeah, yesterday I, that Tim opened the RFC for incremental site generation on Next. Is that similar to what you're talking about? Yeah, so we designed this API for static site generation, first of all, to give people this ergonomic benefit, as I mentioned, that mm-hmm. they don't have to use Next Export anymore, and they can make these decisions in a very granular basis. They can do it on a per-page basis. They can decide how many, quote-unquote, dynamic pages they want to generate. But also, we designed this with this idea in mind that we knew that everyone that has chosen Next.js has chosen it for its scalability. And we knew that we wanted to have this idea of incremental static site generation uh, open. And that's, for example, why we introduced that idea of the fallback. Mm -hmm. That when you go to a page that would be altogether new and that it was not known at build time, Next.js contemplates that case. So by using get a static process and get a static paths, you're basically, you know, 99% of the way there in also getting the capabilities of incremental static site generation. Right. Yeah, I actually think that's a really interesting approach just because, like, especially within the Jamstack model, the, a lot of the criticism tends to be that it's really fast, so-and-so, but the moment your site increases in the number of pages, like if you're talking about mm-hmm. thousands or a million pages, the build time automatically increases like exponentially so that whenever you make one change or you're adding a new page, the entire site needs to rebuild, which, you know, can take anywhere from a couple of minutes to hours. 
And I think that's the general criticism that Jamstack gets a lot just because people are like, look, I mean, I get the benefit. Users get the benefit overall of a faster site, but the you know, you as the key stakeholder of like the people building the site have to incur the cost of pe- having to wait for the entire totally. site to build and update. And, and I think what's been great about Jamstack, even prior to Next.js, uh, for example, addressing this problem, is that you were still getting this very customer-friendly and end-user-friendly benefits, which is why I think it's uh, gained so much popularity because I've talked to people that have used very long build processes and at the mm-hmm. end of the day, they were still happier relative to sometimes their website being down or being slow, right? Mm-hmm. But it is true that it's a false dichotomy. I think Jamstack can scale to you know, manage millions of pages. And I think the right balance to strike here is that you can do uh, some of the work at build time, and then you can defer some of the work at runtime. So it hasn't been an all or nothing kind of situation ever. But for example, mm-hmm. if you wanted to do this today by hand, it would be a little bit difficult, right? Like you would have to use a static yeah. site generator. Then you would have to generate a skeleton for uh, the page that like, let's say you're creating an e-commerce item, right? And like your, mm-hmm. your store has millions of products. You would have to have the page with no data. And then you would have to write the code path for using the Jamstack to like render on the client side, right? When that kind of mm-hmm. fallback gets uh, kicks in. But then the really cool thing that we are doing with Next.js is that if if one of those pages gets produced kind of uh, on demand, it's almost like it had been added to the build. So we are able to reuse the work that was incurred in sort of capturing that longer tail. Mm. So imagine that you generate a thousand uh, e-commerce products, then the thousand and one gets dynamically generated on demand. So you receive a skeleton, it gets populated, etc. But then also, in in this case, this is done by the Zide CDN automatically. But anyone that implements this Next.js capability gets it. We can also backfill the cache, so the CDN mm-hmm. gets a copy of that new product that we generated. So basically, you're getting you know infinitely scalable Jamstack. And from the perspective of the developer, the only two APIs that they need to implement are get aesthetic props and get aesthetic paths. So I'm mm-hmm. really happy with how ergonomic this capability has ended up being. Yeah, I actually really like that model of how to optimize for both, both the developer experience as well as the user experience. Yeah, one of the things that I heard specifically with this was uh, an article, I think it was on CSS Tricks that, was it Phil? Phil Hawksworth wrote just about the whole trying to do, because I think generally people think of Jamstack as pre-rendering everything. And I think that's where the criticism for build time comes into play. Mm -hmm. But I like the approach of pre-rendering as much as possible because that's where the benefit of the speed comes in. And then almost having the, I guess... And the risking, by the way. The risking, The one that I love, yeah, because we've gotten so many comments on our platform of developers being happy that their build failed. And like, it's kind mm-hmm. of counterintuitive. Like maybe it was because, you know, like they made a typo in the code or something mm-hmm. happened to go wrong with the network at that exact time. And they were like, oh, wow, this is so awesome. In an alternative universe, my website would be down right now. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And it's just a matter of like pre-render as much as possible. And then in, in the cases when you do update it, having that as like the ability to almost, it's, it's sort of like serverless rendering 
Con because it's on the yep. fly, you're essentially dynamically yep. creating that. And then like in the background without the user seeing backfilling the cache and making sure that things are up to date. And something that's really cool that I think Phil does touch on that article is that we still are as fast as possible from the edge every time mm -hmm. you hit one of these pages, because basically what we give you is the page as if it was an SPA, right? Yep. We give you the shape or the skeleton of the page that's missing. So your customer is never held up waiting for a page that doesn't load, that doesn't feel immediately responsive, mm -hmm. or even a page that could fail in a way that is not recoverable. Oh, definitely. So one thing I love about Jamstack is, you know, as long as you downloaded the HTML and the JS, there is so much that you can do to like make sure that that rendering is successful, that traditional server rendering has not been able to accomplish, right? Mm -hmm. A great example is retrying API calls, falling back to service workers. So uh, this is kind of the beauty of, of this model is that you're not really trading off any of the benefits of Jamstack. Definitely. Yeah, and I think one thing worth noting, which I, I think you mentioned a little bit, is that generally whenever we talk about using serverless functions, there's always this, you know, general thing, which is that you have, in a lot of cases, when you have a site on a CDN that's super close to the user, so you don't have as much latency, but the moment you include a serverless function, that might not necessarily be at that specific edge node in which you're serving your site. Right, and so that right, can right. add lag time, which I think often people don't think about because they just assume everything is at the edge, which is not necessarily the case. Totally. But I think what could make this a lot faster is if you have that logic live on the CDN, like essentially the edge logic, either as a Cloudflare edge worker or whatever that may be, so that you have the speed of like the CDN plus the ability to essentially pre-rent or serverlessly render <laughs> as totally. quickly as possible. Totally. Yeah. yeah, I think what Cloudflare is doing is really cool. We'll see how, you know, these technologies end up integrating because... I think these benefits have to come to the developer in a way that's super natural. I think mm -hmm. what's, what's been interesting about serverless is we really need to hold the bar of the usability of all these tools for Jamstack, for serverless, for functions with the same kind of super easy adoption and, and development process that old school monolithic apps had, right? So I think the instant that the developer has to start worrying about, oh, this should be in the worker, but this should be on the client, this should, in what edge am I running? Things get really complicated. So I really, really uh, agree with, with what you said. I think, you know, we have to make it fast, but not let the developer fall for traps where like, oh, my code is not running in the right place and, and, and the database mm -hmm. is slow and therefore I'm, I'm hurting my end user. Which again is yeah. why I love to pre-render as much as possible, right? Because like it kind of removes all that uncertainty. Yeah, I think it's about making sure the mental model matches because I think the moment you start, and I think this again is another thing around edge workers is that you're like, at what point do you pre-render? At what point do things live as an edge worker? And then with that, how much should mm -hmm. you put in the edge worker? Correct. How much should the edge worker Correct. do? Because it's also like a different model of thinking about things. You're writing your application yep. in Next or whatever tool you're using, and then you're almost having to shift your mental model to look at another piece of tool. To another spectrum of JS, correct. Like yep. you have to think about, okay, this is the next JS code base, but wait, there's this other code base, which is a worker code base, right? So like you mm -hmm. have to be really clear 
or make the abstraction work in, in such a way that you don't realize that, you know, there is that kind of edge code running. But I'll add two more things that I think a lot about when I think about like uh, loading edge code. One of them is that loading code opens yourself back up to failure modes that are not as easy to anticipate, right? Yeah. So the most obvious and kind of like theoretical one is that a Turing complete language like JS, we cannot decide ahead of time if the code is going to halt or not. So you might deploy an edge worker that results for a certain subset of users into a deadlock, for example. Yep, yeah. Whereas with uh, pushing HTML to the edge, we've kind of removed that entire uncertainty. The other one is the time complexity, right? What I love about static files at the edge is you basically have you know constant time complexity. Mm-hmm. And with code, well, developers now to think about all their data structures and allocating memory correctly and you know what happens with time to first byte if i have arbitrary code running at the edge mm-hmm. and finally there is the other one of like hey what am i handling errors correctly am i retrying correctly so edge code creates complexity this is why for now we haven't really incorporated that in, into the model what we're saying is you know next.js will generate static pages and then later on, it can generate more static pages. And the Edge uh, network basically all only receives HTML, JS, and CSS. But I do think that uh, there is a future where the developer can also run some, you know, like just-in-time logic at the Edge as well. This episode is brought to you by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean's developer cloud makes it simple to launch in the cloud and scale up as you grow. They have an intuitive control panel, predictable pricing, team accounts, worldwide availability with a 99.99 uptime SLA and 24-7-365 world-class support to back that up. DigitalOcean makes it easy to deploy, scale, store, secure, and monitor your cloud environments. Head to do.co slash changelog to get started with a $100 credit. Again, do.co slash changelog. I'd love to zoom out a little bit and talk about industry trend towards Jamstack itself. I made a joke recently, I think on Changelog News, as I was linking to another CSS trick article, how you can almost rename it Jamstack Tricks at this point because <laughs> so much <laughs> of CSS Tricks is about the Jamstack. And then I started to get introspective and I was like, wait a second, we've done Gatsby and now Tom Preston Warner with Redwood and now Guillermo with, with Next. And it's like, maybe we need to be Jamstack party instead of JS party because it's definitely a thing that's getting a lot of airtime and thought time amongst developers. I'm curious from your perspective. Yeah, and also add something really interesting to that. I do think that Jamstack is the way to make JS successful at scale. I've sometimes mm. told my team internally that I personally always thought that Node.js was going to go further as an industry trend. Like I thought it was going to get much bigger. I thought it was going to have much more enterprise success. Mm-hmm. But then I realized, mm-hmm. like thinking really deeply about the way that you use Node.js, what constitutes a Node.js app, 
And it's understandable that it didn't get as big as we once hoped, because I think the execution model for JavaScript as uh, running a monolithic server that has to be up and running continuously, that has to manage memory optimally, that has to like be really optimal in terms of throughput and latency. I don't think JS is as, I mean, it's great, don't get me wrong, but I actually think that Jamstack has picked up really the essence of where JS belongs, like truly the good parts of JS. So much so that I think that Jamstack is superior to other programming models that use native programming languages. Because if you think about Jamstack and, and deploying code to the edge, for example, what better language could exist than a scripting language that compresses really well, that's very tiny, that can be minified, that can be iterated on very quickly, that can interact very quickly with new platform features and browsers and so on. And it's all about being optimized for being loaded safely, securely, and dynamically inside a browser sandbox. Mm -hmm. Like that is where JS belongs, where Jamstack has put it. And then Jamstack has really also embraced serverless functions, right? And that's Mm -hmm. also a place where JS is shining relative to this, again, monolithic Node.js model. Like if you look at like enterprises that adopted JS on the back end, the reality is that many of them ended up moving to Go, to Rust, et cetera, et cetera. But I do think that the serverless function model also makes Node.js and JS shine again because it fixes a lot of the problems that JS has with managing concurrency and scaling horizontally and throughput. And if you have a memory leak, in some ways, you know, uh, serverless functions also have your back. So in terms of what you just said, you know, like let's rename JS Party or Jamstack Party. I mean, obviously you're not going to do it. It, it, I love the name (laughs) JS Party, but... It does make sense that, you know, this is what we should all be rooting for because it's going to help make JS so successful for just about everyone in the world. So Jamstack has a lot of road bumps, like things to get over. These are the things that we've been talking about in the first segment, right? Like how do we do these things well, especially like we the, the problem of incremental builds or not rebuilding the entire world and these developer experience at deploy time is one of the big ones. From your perspective, what are the its virtues? You mentioned some in the first one. I love you just to highlight like this is why Jamstack is worth all of the effort that we're going to. Because one of the things I say often is it sounds like we're jumping through a lot of hoops just to avoid some server side rendering, and <laughs> uh, it, we are. That being said, I'm not against it. It just seems like wow, we're, there's a lot of complexity to get around this other complexity, which at least was mentally straightforward. Of I take in a request and I do some stuff and then I respond with some HTML. So why is Jamstack worth all the effort? So I would say number one is, and why I agree with you that it makes sense to go through any hurdle that it presents, is that it's the most user-centric technology that you can think of because it optimizes for your user, your customer, your buyer, getting the information that they want. In the ideal case, again, pre-rendered and served directly from the edge. So never offline, always fast, always what they need. It's also uh, embraced a very rigorous testing methodology. So a lot of people that are building in the Jamstack ecosystem, like Gatsby, Next.js, Netlify, Eleventy, they've all kind of embraced this performance-first mindset, right? Like you see it with... Uh, we're always discussing Lighthouse. We're always discussing Edge. We're always discussing CDN. We're you know talking about how much JS we're shipping. 
and this is why I think again is it's it's so healthy for ecosystem to go in this direction because with I don't think in the days of SSR kind of the user of SSR that went global I think of WordPress right mm-hmm. you would install it in Apache you would set up a PHP and then you have your WordPress SSR right mm-hmm. WordPress never really had the opportunity to optimize these two things availability was pretty bad you know like the error connecting to MySQL database kind of uh, H1 HTML kind of became uh, synonymous with WordPress being stressed right. at scale in some the ways. The slash dot effect that became the dig effect, then it yep. became the hacker news totally. effect. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and, and, and number two, I got slash dotted. That was the old saying. I don't know if, if you remember, but uh, WordPress had this helper method called WPNQ script that mm. would uh, add JS libraries to your page and it was being used basically like with no limit. And if you kind of inspect any WordPress page, and again, in my mind, this is all caused by the trend away from other languages and into JS. It's just like the demand for JS increasing. You know, there were unlimited uh, JS files being loaded into a WordPress template coming from, you know, dozens of different sources, some from a CDN, some from your own. The caching headers weren't being correctly configured. There was no bundling whatsoever. So Mm -hmm. each page inside WordPress that you would go to, you know, load 10, 20, 30 from different origins of different sites. I would always inspect WordPress sites and find multiple copies of jQuery that were being enqueued into the page from different plugins and themes. So Jamstack is kind of like, if you think about it, like we're, we're saying, well, we've kind of know how to solve all the problems of APIs, editing data in a CMS. We can even reuse WordPress as a headless CMS. And mm-hmm. Jamstack is saying, okay, now let's focus on the user. Let's ship optimized JS. You know, let's focus on that first contentful paint metric. Let's focus on the time to interactive metric. So Really, I think it is the culmination of a process that has been going on for you know decades now of really understanding the web, what the web is best at, understanding where pre-rendering makes sense, where you know SPA type architectures make sense, and and the community has now spent time building the infrastructure both for edge and framework to kind of give you these best practices in a box, you know? And that's, in a nutshell, adopting Gemsec today is becoming as easy as, you know, executing NPX, create next app. That's the world we're going. So I do think we're going to, you know, to your point, there are some challenges today uh, in adopting Gemsec, but, you know, this is why we're building all this robust framework so that you can get Mm -hmm. them all kind of without thinking too much about it. Yeah, I, I really like that that definition of it. And I think Chris Coyer also like has a talk where he talks about the, I forget what the exact title is, but he just talks about the reign of the front end developer, just gaining so much more control because the whole model of the Jamstack focuses more on the browser. So like in the past, whenever we did web development, you had to split time between what the browser could do and what the server could do. Cause you're thinking about monolithic applications that were dynamically rendered from the server. And so there were different things and assumptions you had to make if you were dealing with the server or dealing with the browser 
because if things were being run server side, you don't have access to window, you don't have access to like the totally. DOM or anything like mm -hmm. that. Um, but I think within the Jamstack model, there's so much focus on just the experience of the user that you don't even have to split between like what is possible from the server side, what is possible from the browser side or this client side, because you're focusing so much on the client side. But at the same time, you're also trying really hard not to, because there's so much criticism these days, particularly in performance around there's too much JavaScript, you're loading too much JavaScript. And so the Jamstack model kind of pushes to be like, is there a way that you can build websites where you're still using JavaScript, but you're pre-rendering, so you're not using a lot of JavaScript, you're using enough totally. that you just need. And then if you need like extra functionality that's tacked on, you would just throw that in a serverless function and invoke it when you need, rather than loading it client-side and having it run constantly and bloat. And also, I think what's been important too is making sure that if you do need a function or a server, it's not blocking that delivery of that mm -hmm. first interaction with the system. So the idea that, you know, there is an uncertainty of what happens and how long does this code take to execute, whether that happens, you know, upfront or whether it happens later, I think makes a big difference. So in the case of pre-rendering, for example, I get the full content of what I'm interested in, whether it's product or whether it's blog post, marketing page, whatever it is. And then I can, like you said, more code can be executed later. But that code that gets executed later is not blocking my first interaction with the core functionality of the page. So you're really optimizing for what the user is after. And think of you know, the idea of getting you know, the data that the user was searching for in a, on a search engine and getting basically like the performance of AMP, but without even necessarily needing to use AMP. And then having mm -hmm. the full power of JS on top to do more stuff later on. So it seems like on if you consider a full stack application, we used to have a very straight up divide between front end and back end. It seems like in terms of a full stack developer, what's happening with Jamstack and, and modern JS practices is like the front end is kind of eating the back end, so to speak. It's like it's moving that direction versus the other way. I would and agree. I would especially with yeah. the advancement of serverless functions and stuff. So like you're empowering front end developers to do more. And yeah, oh, completely. Completely. But it's not like there's no, I mean, you still have the A in Jamstack, right? You still have the API aspect. And you still have to be able to construct an API to interact with the back end, like with a database or a data store of some kind. And, um, I think one of the misconceptions about Jamstack is like the A is always somebody else's code. Yeah. Like right, you're going right. to be talking to some third party API. And it seems like that because a lot of the companies that are promoting Jamstack, not just the clouds, so to speak, like Zite and Netlify, but a lot of the APIs as a service are like, and we're part of your Jamstack because now here's your auth right here or here's your image processing. Like that's a third party API. But I think in lots of cases, you're right in your own APIs. I do think that the truth is somewhere in the middle uh, because, yeah. for example, a lot of the functions that we write at Zide for our core systems are acting as glue sometimes between, they're not fully like us, you know, think of it as like writing assembly code versus writing a high level language. We're not necessarily always writing raw infrastructure inside those functions. We're sometimes, you know, maybe invoking a bunch of API calls to Stripe to perform some sort of billing related task. 
So the A, arguably, the heavy lifting of the A is being done by Stripe. And mm-hmm. we're simply, you know, adding some more business logic on top. Something that's really cool about functions that I think doesn't get discussed enough is that, for example, with, with Zite functions, we allow you to say what region you want to deploy them to. And we tell you, well, this region maps to this, you know, AWS region, or uh, it's close to this Google Cloud region. So say that your API provider, in this case, uh, let's say it's a Stripe, right? For your billing, charges, customers, whatever. And uh, they're in US East, uh, in the Virginia data center or around there. If you deploy your function far away from Stripe, if you're making lots of API calls to Stripe to get a certain result, you're going to see very bad latency. Like you're going to see that your function takes like multiple seconds to execute. However, if you deploy it right next to Stripe, it's basically like functions are literally augmenting the Stripe code base because you're literally deploying them to the same data center. And mm-hmm. all of a sudden you mm-hmm. go from like, instead of a 90 millisecond round trip, you go to like sub millisecond because it ends up being in the same data center as the Stripe computers are in AWS. So I see functions as this incredible, almost like open plugin ecosystem for the world. I think longer term, we're going to be writing functions that do very little in terms of, you know, uh, like I said, that kind of like low level infrastructure stuff. And it's more like you're just going to be invoking different API providers. It's happening a lot with databases, right? Like a lot of databases mm-hmm. are moving to providing HTTP gateways for executing their uh, payload. So it feels like when you're talking to like Aurora MySQL on AWS, it feels like you're talking to just yet another RESTful API, only that it has more flexibility with regards to you know the queries that you send. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I would like to talk about one particular thing. So you've talked in various places in various conferences, the concept of so serverless is really cool and really interesting, specifically edge functions, because it gives you the ability to offload logic that's otherwise server side to something that runs a bit faster that doesn't require you to pay for a server and the uptime and all of that. Um, But one of the downsides of using edge functions and serverless is that it's generally stateless. So you don't have the concept of like a previous state. And I think you talked a little bit about this concept of stateful serverless where you, I think you demoed like this Pokemon game where you were showing like, yeah, that was really cool. Can you speak more to like the whole concept of how stateful serverless works? So the reality that, uh, of why I think, you know, we're going to see a lot of functions that call to other infrastructure is that functions today are a little bit more limited than servers in terms of their ability to, for example, preserve a cache in process, right? So let's say that you're uh, a great example is like Discord recently wrote about how they maintain these very highly optimized in-memory data structures to maintain the state of the real-time state of a certain room of the connection state of the people that are in, uh, chatting inside Discord. And a lot of the optimizations that they're making and a lot of what makes this super real-time immersive uh, experiences possible is that they're basically not calling out to other systems. Like you're basically being taken into the right in-process cache that contains a lot of the information that uh, you're interested in. 
Now, if you think about lambda functions, the misconception is that they're stateless. In reality, you can maintain some memory that is shared by previous invocations and then subsequent invocations. The big limitation that they have is that that cache tier cannot really be relied upon that much because each discrete invocation will might start with no memory whatsoever when you start scaling mm -hmm. up or down. You're not going to have that high cache hit ratio that you would otherwise have with a server. Now, that doesn't mean that you know the memory inside the function is not, or, or even the slash temp directory doesn't exist. No, it's there and you should use it. What I demonstrated in that demo is that you could even write a fully stateful system if you relied on, for example, Redis. Mm -hmm. So what I did to make that uh, Pokemon demo work is that I moved the state into Redis, and then I didn't care if a certain function had this cache hit happening or not. And if it was a cache hit, because the same function keeps getting reused, I would take advantage of that. So it's interesting to to consider that, right? Because like when you're operating at a very, very high scale, or you're doing a lot of things that are very, very real time, you do want to have some like shared memory between lots of different requests. Now, this is why I think that, you know, functions in combination with, you know, this novel database systems like Dynamo and Cosmos DB and Fauna are going to be really the way that we can solve this, you know, durable functions problem of like, I need to not just do like, you know, a trivial transformation in my function. I want to, you know, do IO and keep state and scale correctly. We're going to have to start, you know, heading towards the databases that are appropriate for, for those cases. Yeah, definitely. I think that's one thing that, like I was looking at AWS step functions and just the ability for you to do IO between functions, because oftentimes we talk about functions as in isolation, like this function just does one thing. But sometimes you have functions that rely on other functions. So it's just a right. sequence of events. And so how would you do that? Because I think generally whenever we hear people talk about serverless functions, there isn't a lot of talk about how you would chain functions together, how they would pass from one to the next. Yeah, yeah. I, I do think we need the DX of that today for most implementations of serverless functions is not good enough. It's doable, no. right? With like uh, storing the state somewhere and then that another function like kind of responding to that yep. state change. And then, uh, but I do agree that I love the spirit of making your function invocations very, very short lived so that you can scale certain parts of the life cycle of what you're doing independently, right? Like in, in a transformation pipeline, you might have steps that require even different memory and CPU configurations, right? Yep. The crazy thing about functions is that like, they're super configurable and they're super granular, right? So when you compare this to the old serverful world, it, the difference is kind of crazy, right? Like in a old express server, you had kind of like free for all, all the endpoints, yeah. share everything with everybody else. CPU and memory is the same, but it's shared by the entire server. The environment even, like in terms of security, like the M variables are applied to the entire server. With functions, we can make all this granular. Now the question becomes, you know, are you getting too ahead of the optimization game 
when you were writing just a prototype, right? Yeah. So this is why in Next.js API functions, we, we did as much as we could to make it feel like you're writing Express almost, even easier in some ways because you have the file system. So you just create an API directory inside pages and then you put your functions in there. But we're conscious of this thing because there's a lot of power that comes with functions, but you don't want to overcomplicate it either, right? Definitely. This is why some people keep saying, oh, oh like, you know, like for my A, I'm still okay with Ruby and Rails and I'll use yeah. Jamstack for the front end. I, I think uh, that comes from perhaps, you know, the function world being still nascent in some ways. Yeah, I think the other thing also that's worth mentioning is that with functions, and I think this is the case, it's ubiquitous across every functions offering out there, is that dependency management is a little bit clunky at the moment just because of the way that you would serve a function. You, you would have to like ship the function by zipping the entire thing and having an executable so that all the dependencies live with it. And then you have to make sure that that specific dependency is not, like it has to live in the same place that your function lives so it has access to it. I think in a nutshell, the reality that we're living in today is that functions run Node.js, right? Like that's the run. Exactly, yeah. But the ecosystem is shared. It's like we all use NPM. But the ecosystem itself is targeting these environments that share the runtime but are actually quite different, right? So there's almost this impedance mismatch where developers, you know, come to using a function and then they expect that everything that they're used to in the Node.js world works out of the box. And yeah. that kind of like mismatch and sometimes being a paper cut, right? We've seen this with um, databases, right? Like if you just want to use the PG client for, for Postgres, for Node, and mm -hmm. the way that connection pooling works with Postgres SQL servers, and then you like kind of make use it with functions now, you immediately, almost immediately run up against the wall of, oh, I opened too many connections to Postgres and the yeah. connections were not gracefully closed. So now, basically, I was promised my website would never go down because of Jamstack and serverless. <laughs> and now like three database queries and like my server is exacerbated. Yeah. And by the way, this impedance mismatch is exactly what you were talking about with regards to that server versus client rendering environment, right? Like you would have to use node fetch for the server and then fetch for the client and they're slightly different. And then one context is yeah. window and the other one doesn't. So NPM had to navigate that problem too. I remember Seldo uh, started realizing by looking at the data that Browser.js was getting deployed a lot to NPM. And keep in mind that to them, to Isaac and, and Zelda, like that was a surprising emergent behavior from the community because mm -hmm. NPM was literally designed to be the node package manager. I think maybe that's what originated the joke of like, you know, all the different acronyms of NPM. Like, oh yeah. <laughs> nice people matter. Yeah. And like, yeah, they, they rotate on the website. But it's true, right? Like JS is so, this is not a great word right now with coronavirus, but JS is so viral that NPM has become kind of a repository of everything. And then the developer has to make the right decision for what package fits the environment that they are deploying to. Definitely. Yeah. And, and that's why I'm really like, excited to see the emergence of like Dino and ES modules because it's completely shifting the model away from Agreed. all of the problems we had with Node and NPM. 
yeah, for example, if Dino focuses on functions, which I think they are from yes. the get-go, then we can have a higher degree of certainty that if I write Dino functions, then they will have thought about these problems early on and there is less of that kind of like bumping against the wall problem. What up, nerds? I got some pretty awesome news to share with you. Pluralsight is totally free for the entire month of April. I'm not kidding. Seriously, head to pluralsight.com slash changelog and skill up while you stay at home. For the entire month of April, you'll get access to over 7,000 courses from experts in software development, security, cloud, and data. There's never been a better time to skill up. Head to pluralsight.com slash changelog. Again, pluralsight.com slash changelog. So you two are deep in the weeds on this stuff, which is awesome to listen into and hear about the the ins and outs of solving particular problems with Jamstack, with SSGs, with all these things, serverless, Lambda functions, et cetera. And I feel like I'm a little bit on the outside looking in, um, trying to look at the trend as a whole and going back to this this concept of, of the technology adoption lifecycle. I'm not sure if you guys are aware of this, but the idea of you have innovators, early adopters, mm-hmm. Early majority, late majority lagger. It's like this flow. And on this particular new type of web application, all on the Jamstack, I'm just curious what you two think, where we are in that adoption lifecycle, like if it's still in the innovator phase or if it's moved beyond that, and then what stands between where we are today and some sort of mass adoption where like most developers are building Jamstack-style apps in their day-to-day use. So that's for either one of you to to kick off. Uh, where are we and what's what's still in the way before everybody can start doing this? I think we're past the early innovation phase, clearly. I think we've seen lots of, you know, large websites, large teams, large companies use uh, our platform and Next.js to, in the Jamstack kind of structure mm-hmm. in production. I think the recognition of hey, this is definitely the solution. It's still not 100% that everybody says like, oh, I absolutely need to use Jamstack for absolutely everything that I create, especially as as you get deeper and deeper into uh, companies that have been running their workloads in a different way, right? And they're thinking about what the future is for them. So what was interesting about Next.js is that uh, and it's still the case that it's a hybrid framework. You can still opt into SSR for certain things. And some companies feel comfortable with adopting new technology in that progressive way, right? Mm-hmm. Perhaps the thing that they're after at that given time is React. And they feel more comfortable mm-hmm. saying, look, I can maintain almost everything the way it is today. And then I get the benefit of React. So I think this is why I'm a really big fan of like incremental adoption of Jamstack, where like we tell customers like think of adopting it even one page at a time, and then you'll see the benefits for yourself, and then you'll see the higher conversion. I've now seen customers tell me like, look, I kind of went into this very interesting in what you're saying, very interesting in in the case studies that you're showing, but when we actually rolled it out, we saw an improvement on our business metrics, not just like. You know, mm-hmm. Lighthouse, forget all that. Like, we've had so many customers tell us, like, look, I'm converting better. 
Um, and that's what we want to hear. You know, that's what we uh, want to hear from like VPs of marketing. That's what we want to hear from CTOs. That's what we want to hear from everyone that chooses this technology is like, hey, it's giving us better business results. And then the, the other uh, kind of side of that is the developer satisfaction, right? And I think that's where, sure, there's some, you know, rough edges. Like uh, sometimes as projects grow, like for some people, like the build times get longer and whatever. But for the most part, as Divio saying, if, for example, now you're writing in one JS environment and you're not worrying about the dual execution and you're not worrying about servers and dev uh, workflow is simple and fast, then on the other side of that, not only do you get like better business metrics, but you get more developer satisfaction. And what's happening in terms of that curve that you were talking about is developers tend to gravitate to the tools that they feel more, most productive in and that give them the, the best results in terms of like shipping new features and iterating and solving problems efficiently. Right. And we're seeing tons of momentum there, right? Like Next.js kind of gave people a great DX for React applications. And uh, we see, as you also mentioned, that front-end teams are now more and more eating companies and being the decision makers. And I would say that we're past the innovation phase because we've seen that it was front-end teams that took this technology into so many big names. Uh, like when we talk to the Hulu team, it's like, okay, like how did this idea of using Next start? And it typically starts with front-end developers and it typically starts with you know that desire to create more uh, interactive experiences and shipping faster. So I think we've seen plenty of results already. And, but I'm still super optimistic that relative to how young this uh, movement is, mm -hmm. there's so much upside. And we're, we're still really in the early innings. But what's interesting is that we already have so much proof that this works well you know, for very, very large sites and customers. So we're in, I think this is pretty unique to Jamstack itself because typically uh, I was part of the early days of Node and Node always had a lot of promise for like being production ready and like it had that developer excitement, but the production usage was always kind of more like, yeah, you know, like we made it work, but it took this and that. Right. And it, it seemed that there were a lot more obstacles. Now, this time, it feels the opposite. Sometimes, as you pointed out, maybe the developer was more comfortable with the Ruby and Rails monolith, right? Right. But in reality, the Jamstack solution works way better in prod. So it's a, it's a very unique situation. I love it. Yeah, I would say that uh, that goes back to, I think, this directional shift of the front end eating the back end. When Node first hit, the, the promise, there's a promise of what's it called? Isomorphic apps, basically like, run, you know, yep. writing your code and running it on the front and the back end. And that attracted some, but there are plenty of uh, us and myself included that it's just like, well, I'm pretty happy with my back end technology. The stuff that I build doesn't always have to be quote unquote web scale. And I'm fine with that. But JavaScript in the front end has always been the lingua franca. It's always been the thing that all, totally. com all companies, all developers, Anybody on the web is going to be using despite their backends or regardless of their backends. And where Jamstack is actually attacking the front end and saying, here is mm -hmm. a better way of doing. It's a better uh, fit. Yeah. Yeah. And so now you have a much bigger potential audience because you didn't have to convince them to ditch their server-side technology. You're actually convincing them to rebuild in a different way. Yeah. And that's what I meant by the incremental adoption curve that I love is I think the trend 
that now is in the place of like the laggards or whatever is enterprises have been moving towards decoupling their front and their backends, right? And some chose REST, some are choosing GraphQL, but that trend is now mature, that companies know that there is a big benefit to exporting their systems as publicly consumable APIs. And even that movement in itself, I think, has a lot of upside still. But let's say that that's a more mature trend. So now when you think about Jamstack, which is a more young uh, trend, it's really fitting in so well with where the ecosystem already was, which is, oh, you probably already, if you're a larger established player, you already have that API. Uh, or you were in the process of creating it because you were, the, I think this trend even also hops onto the rise of mobile because mobile native needed GraphQL, needed REST, mm-hmm. right? So now you come in and you create a front-end architecture right. that matches what you were already doing for, for mobile. So it's like, right. uh, it, it's so compatible with the other coexisting trends that that's what I think has been giving it this, you know, a boost, in adoption. Right. Yeah, this was a similar thing that Tom President Warner said a couple of weeks back when we were talking about Redwood. I think it was actually during a break, but maybe it made it into the post show. And I was talking about wouldn't it be better for developers in terms of mental model if we could just take the straightforward unidirectional flow of a server response. You know, I get a request, I do some logic, I output some HTML. Like that's a very straightforward mental model for developers. And one of the reasons why React was so successful is because it t- took that single, that unidirectional flow, brought it to the front end. And I said, what if we could just take that and just distribute it to the edges and have my local database? And like, if I could just take my monolith and make a thousand monoliths at different CDNs around the world, wouldn't that be better for developers if I could still do my server-side rendering? And his response to that was, that does not solve the multi-client problem, which is exactly what you're mm-hmm. talking about. And there is another problem with that, by the way, which is the latency problem that I was describing with the Stripe example, mm-hmm. which is with the exception of Fauna's uh, geo-replication model, uh, which is built on a novel replication and coordination system called Calvin, with the exception of that and perhaps Google Spanner, databases are not mature enough yet to coexist with your edge. Right. I was giving him a hypothetical world where this was true. So I wasn't assuming. That's a super interesting hypothetical. Yeah. Uh, I think we're nowhere near that world existing. Right. I think uh, this is why I'm excited about Fauna is that I think considering how the world in some ways really had already been quote unquote sheltering in place, right? Already with like <laughs> regulations and stricter borders. And yeah. and these are all like things that are not very exciting, especially when it comes to like, you know, we've had uh, speakers get detained at the border and or sent mm-hmm. home. And like, it's, it's a horrible trend. But the reality is that as Balaji's tweeted recently, you're saying like this coronavirus thing might be accelerating trends that were already kind of there. Like, mm-hmm. For a lot of us, you know, work from home and remote work in the distributed teams were like was a reality, but for the vast majority of the world wasn't. So now this is going to accelerate it. It's going to accelerate Zoom adoption. It's going to accelerate deploy previews. We've seen that even on, over the past two weeks, like our numbers, the number of builds and deploys to Zide have just skyrocketed. So all these trends are going to get accelerated. And I think 
when it comes to databases, databases having a sense of locality has been what governments have always wanted. The most obnoxious and extreme version of this is how China wanted its own shard, quote unquote, of iCloud that lives in China and doesn't have end-to-end right. encryption, right? Mm-hmm. So um, th- there could be a world in the future where the database is everywhere, and therefore the logic for the code that interacts with that database can also be everywhere. But that's not where we're today. Uh, we're not nowhere even close to that. So the most that you can have is like a distributed cache, like what Cloudflare is trying with, I think they call it KV or something like that. But uh, today, what's more realistic is that you have a certain database origin, and therefore you have a, a uh, co-located API origin as well. What we're starting to see is that you can move certain functions to other locations or even to all the edges. But that's more of a distant reality. I think yeah. uh, I would be surprised if it even happened You know, in the next two to three years at scale. I think what's mm-hmm. more likely to happen is, again, you're going to create an API in, in your region that makes the most sense. Like uh, one way or another, everyone has big Virginia, right? Um, mm-hmm. And that's going to be your start. And you're going to create an API around that. But then what you're going to distribute everywhere is your front end. And your pay, and your static pages and your static generated pages and so on. And by the way, I love that too because, like I said, I think the best outcome for uh, consumers is that when they go to the content, there's no API call at all. There's no service, nothing. It's just mm-hmm. like, hey, give me the copy of the content that I wanted. Right. Um, so uh, I'm pretty happy with that world. Until a meteor hits Virginia, and then we're all correct. Free. Correct. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was during one of the old yeah. AWS downtime years ago. Somebody made a joke like, "Turns out the cloud is just some building in Virginia because they brought down so many websites." Yeah. And it's still true today. And if you think about it, right, like the latency from Europe to Virginia is not bad at all, right? I always say, mm. I always say, like, uh, you know, pay attention to like uh, the. Uh, latency figures that every developer should know by a famous Googler. And one of the ones he mentions is California to the Netherlands round trip is 150 milliseconds or so, maybe even less. But let's add some padding, right? So if you think about like a critical market for you, which is London, London to Virginia is actually pretty damn fast, right? Mm. And California to Virginia as well. Now, I'm not advocating for a suboptimal world because like then your customer in Sao Paulo should probably have a database in Sao Paulo. Like that's the reality. Mm-hmm. But right. like again, there is a lot of technology that needs to be created for that world to exist. If the political climate around, you know, the president of Brazil wanting all the data in Brazil and the president of Russia wanting all the data in Russia continues, maybe this that'll sort of accelerate that uh, that movement. But the, uh, the counter movement that might exist in those cases is like the emergence of local clouds, right? Like mm-hmm. the reality is that, you know, like Alibaba cloud is probably, you know, going to dominate in China as well. So and even in those cases, like they're looking for solutions that fit their local market. So I think when it comes to like deciding where your API origin is, you have to kind of be thinking a lot about what business problems you have. And with regards to availability, you also have to think about that. You have to think about disaster recovery, like you said, for the meteorite mm-hmm. case. But increasingly, managed databases have already thought about these problems on your behalf. So we use uh, Cosmos DB and our disaster recovery contract with them is 
if something hits a certain coast, we have in the worst case scenario, five minutes to fail over the API origin to the other coast. So everyone is always going to one API origin, but then we also can mm -hmm. flip the switch and go to another API origin. Yeah, that's, I think, key. So um, I think we're coming to the end of the session. So I guess, Jared, do you have anything you want to ask? I scooped up a couple of questions from the chat and from Twitter that I can pitch, but I don't have to ask those. Uh, Divya, you take. Yeah, I just wanted to ask, I guess, one last question, which is just that we talked a lot about, I, I think we were moving closer to this particular question. Just we talked about edge functions and what's possible, what the Jamstack is like now, because it's been five years since I think it was introduced. But where do you see the future of the Jamstack moving in, like, let's say, the next five years? I think we're going to see frameworks kind of give you the best practices and kind of the Jamstack architecture out of the box. This is uh, for us, you know, like I said, NextJS started as this SSR thing, and then really it evolved in being a Jamstack framework uh, that gives you yeah. these best practices as the defaults, right? I think mm -hmm. I'm really excited about that trend because it answers uh, one of the things that came up, which is like, you know, like we can't create obstacles to the adoption of it. We can't create like lots of questions. We can create like lots of um, do-it-yourself type things around yeah. how to, you know, successfully start with one page and then add more and more and then have this become your primary architecture for your company. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm really excited about that. I'm really excited as well as around all the ideas of integrating with other systems. So we're seeing lots of interesting collaborations right now with all the headless CMS providers with a new feature that we introduced in Next.js for previews. So whether you've chosen Sanity or Prismic mm -hmm. or Strapi, this will have increasingly nicer and nicer integration stories into the frameworks so that it mm -hmm. truly feels like, uh, again, like going back to WordPress, we were kind of, you know, saying, oh, it had problem A and problem B. But when you think about the uh, amazing things that it gave the world, one of them was this like, it's all in a box sort of experience. You know, like you had your themes, you had your output, you had your front end, but then you could go to the admin panel and then like everything was already there. You weren't mm -hmm. thinking about like, oh, I'm going to make a query to my headless CMS yeah. provider, right? Like mm -hmm. that's going to um, odd if you really think about it on its own. If you look at it objectively, it's odd. I always take the example of like, imagine that you take this paradigm or, or new standard to a non-technical person. And yeah. 10 years ago, you show them a demo of WordPress. And now uh, 10 years later, you show them a demo of um, of your sort of, Jamstack plus headless CMS thing. And mm -hmm. there's a lot of rough edges, I think it's still in like that kind of experience, especially for like kind of the editor part. But I think Jamstack now has the ability to leapfrog those experiences. So what we're gonna see in the next even year or so, I'm excited about like uh, new technologies like Tina, where we're gonna see that we're merging the headless CMS editing experience and Sanity is doing it as well as Sanity Studio and we're mm -hmm. co-locating that with the front-end experience. So I always believe in leapfrogs, right? Like our, our bar should not be to be as good as WordPress was. We have to be better too. Mm -hmm. So yeah, making a website that has all this amazing performance and availability kind of features, but also feels like Webflow, 
you know, like yeah. I, I think we're really close to there. Right? Uh, if you want to check out a demo that we put early on that uses the Next.js preview technology, is next-preview.now.sh. Uh, and what this is, is basically a fully static page. It's always served on the edge unless you are in preview mode. If you're in preview mode, we render quote unquote WordPress style where we're always mm -hmm. going to the uh, data source in quote unquote real time or synchronously. So what it ends up being is that it feels like you're editing the website in real time while you're in preview mode. But then in the future, uh, especially with integrations with Sanity and Tina and type.io, uh, we're gonna be able to say, well, now I wanna make, I wanna commit this change. And then it goes into the, the uh, production pipeline. And it, again, like the static pages get generated and we end up with mm -hmm. basically the best of both worlds. So in a nutshell, I'm really excited about, again, elevating the bar of user experience, uh, developer experience, because I think we've made a lot of progress with the infrastructure itself. Like I'm really happy with how fast these pages are to load and the technology that we've created for uh, incremental static site generation. So what we can do now is, you know, fill that gap in terms of, can we make this really feel like no code even? Mm -hmm. Pretty cool stuff. Yeah, I like that you focused also just, and you shined a light on the non-technical audience because often when we talk about websites, sure, developers are building the website, but we also have non-technical contributors like content authors or marketing people totally. who need to contribute. And I think often with Jamstack, it's like, you can use a headless CMS, but sometimes like... Oh, or even uh, technical people in retirement, right? Because I feel yeah, this yeah, way. Definitely. I want to edit the copy or suggest a copy edit of mm -hmm. our marketing pages sometimes. And yeah. uh, like uh, the infamous now Jamstack spelling, like is it Jamstack lowercase, uppercase, <laughs> yeah. you know, and like uh, I'm, I'm yeah. not coding anymore. So now I'm luckily on the other side where I don't want to go to GitHub. I don't want to go to like uh, boot up a dev thing yeah. like i just want to like press a, an edit button and then being able yeah. to submit my preview uh to my coworkers to be like hey what do you think like we could yeah. say this so yeah i totally agree with that i think like you said like sites are meant to be accessible the web is meant to be accessible to everyone you all have probably seen that there's so many memes on Reddit and elsewhere where people use the dev tools to create fake content. Oh, so yeah. mm -hmm. like <laughs> yeah. the dev tools have done a better job yet so far at making this yeah. like uh, technology available to everybody um, than, mm -hmm. than the rest of the world so far. So, but now I, I literally cl and clearly see a path forward. I believe we're about to open source the preview example too, so that everyone can plug it into their headless CMS cool. of choice. But now I kind of see how all this is fitting in. Gatsby is also working on some initiatives around this on mm -hmm. making blocks drag and drop. And, and mm -hmm. so it's, it's a really exciting future for broadening access to, to the web. Yeah, definitely. Cool. And so with that, there's like a very bright future ahead of the Jamstack. I'm very optimistic myself. And I almost echo your sen sentiments around wanting to make sure the editing experience is nice. Like I'm a developer, but I still don't like writing in Markdown, which I think is a yeah. fairly controversial yeah. opinion. I thought we were friends. <laughs> and, and by the way, uh, another thing I was going to add in terms of uh, our bright future is mobile web. So yeah. I recently tweeted about 
uh, a component that we designed for like switching teams on our dashboard. And I've been really excited about it because like if you put in the effort uh, for the UI parts and and, and I think mm-hmm. one of the goals of our uh, chat today was going to be talked about like different browsers and, and, and whatnot, but there was a lot of content to unpack. But one thing I'll say about browsers is as a final note is that I think the Jamstack might have a really good chance making mobile web really, really competitive with native. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things I'd love to like give to the community is the challenge of thinking more about the interactions that feel native in terms of the web that actually are possible. So obviously there's always constraints and we all know that mobile Safari has all kinds of weird limitations, but if you create a component system and a UI system that embraces that environment, you can do really cool things that make mobile web super, super competitive with native. So Mm -hmm. going back to how Jamstack kind of like mirrors the application architecture of a native app in terms of like, you know, you boot up with some code or some shell and then you make API calls and so on. I really think that in the next five years, we're going to see lots of progress in the mobile web ecosystem. Uh, We've been uh, working together with the folks of Ionic uh, around Ionic and Next integrations. And they have really cool ways of embedding your your apps in, in native shells. So I'm really optimistic that we're going to be creating Jamstack apps that really stand on their own in comparison to native apps, both when they're mm-hmm. distributed on demand from a web browser, but also when they're wrapped in, in a shell like React Native Web Views or uh, Ionic Views. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. We're really glad to have you. This was really interesting. I think we talked about so much within the show. So for like, sure. there's so much to unpack. So yeah, thank you again for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. You're welcome back anytime. Thank you for listening to JS Party. We know your time is precious, so we appreciate you spending it with us. Thanks again to Gishermo for joining us. Follow his work on Twitter. He's G. that's at R-A-U-C-H-G. If you want to hear how he got into programming and what got him to start Zite in the first place, we had him on the changelog a few years back. Check it out. That's episode number 213. I'll link it in the show notes for easy clickings. This episode was hosted by Divya, also known as ShortDiv on Twitter. I played Wing and produced it. We get our farm fresh beats from the Beat Freak, Breakmaster Cylinder, and we're brought to you by some amazing people at companies who get it. Special thanks to Fastly, Linode, and Rollbar. That's all for now. We'll talk to you next time. Clap your hands, everybody, if you got what it takes. Cause I'm Curtis Blow, and I want you to know that these are the boys. Is it rude to do so? Slack etiquette. I almost never use at channel. I do. You do use at channel? With, with uh, When we hosted back in ListConf, it helped us tremendously and people received it well. It's like, you know, I think of it as like you're getting a push notification for yeah. something that you signed up for. Um, right. For the company, we like, we've quote unquote banned it because it's, it's right. can be a like, People not realizing how much of an impact it has and things like that. But uh, for conferences and meetups, I've used it and people haven't gotten too mad. Okay. I'm going to use it because I usually use at here. Um, our JS party chat room has like, you know, 800 people chilling. At here means you're live at your, you're signed in. What does that here mean? Does it mean you're signed into Slack in this team 
And you're also active on your computer? Is that what that here means? I'm not sure. I don't know. Nobody knows, maybe. <laughs> I assumed it was whoever was... Like, I don't know if they made the change or something, but I assume that Adhere, at one point, it was everyone in the channel, and then I don't know if they changed it so Adhere was whoever was active and in the channel. That would make sense, but I don't know. Yeah, active and in the channel, which is probably like, yeah. maybe like 5% of the people that are yeah. in the channel. Yeah. All right, I'm going to give it a shot, see if, see if anybody gets mad at me. Sorry if you're in the Slack and already listening, <laughs> you're going to get, ooh, 23 yeah. times... Oh, See, that's what scares me. 787 people in 23 time zones. Are you sure? It's like... <laughs> it's tough. It is tough. Yeah, send it they, now. They should have ad channel with reasonable TZ. You know, like... Yeah, exactly. Downscaled variant. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, that's true. It's like the low-key ad channel. Because here doesn't work, right? Here literally requires that they've been active. And, and yeah, if exactly. they've been active, they already got the message. So... Yeah. Right. All right. Well, I went for it. Uh, if you got that... Cool. And you're mad at us, then uh, I guess leave the JS Party chat room, and you won't get the next one. This would be a, a cool uh, Slack integration, to be honest, because you could say, like I said, message everyone that is not currently active, that is in a reasonable time zone. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And then you have to have some sort of d d definition of reasonable. Maybe it's like <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, like work hours, business hours. Yeah. 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 Like uh, 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. or something. Even like you know. Not sleepy time, basically. All right. Well, well based I on whatever it. you set your hours to be, I guess, because you can do that yeah. in Slack. Oh, you can? Yeah. Yeah, you can set hours. I mean, I do that for work just so that I don't get notifications past the True, true, true. So that's why also I feel confident about that channel too, because yeah. I think most people should have that setting. I even think that it might be a yeah. default now. Mm. Okay, cool. Yeah.